talk about the church in Antioch. So um, if you have your scriptures with you, um, let us turn to um, Isaiah chapter 43, 42, sorry, Isaiah 42, and um, we're going to be reading Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Uh, we actually look at these two texts as kind of Jesus's mission, Jesus's missionary text. Actually, it's Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 53. We're not going to read 53 because I think most of us recognize Isaiah 53. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Um, the chastisement that brought him peace was brought us peace was upon him. So uh, most of us are familiar with that. I don't know how many of us are familiar with Isaiah 42 and 49. So we're going to start off with that this morning. <clears throat> we'll start off in 42, and then we'll, we'll move over to 49. So I don't know if you want to stick a finger in there, or maybe make your neighbor stick their finger in your, in your Bible. I, I don't know, but that way you, you kind of keep track of what we're doing. So Isaiah 42 starts off with this. <clears throat> Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, nor raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord, the, the God, the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand and I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and the light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things that have taken place, the new things I will declare. Before they sprang into being, I announced them to you. What do we notice here? Just a few, a few things real quick before we move on to Isaiah 49. What? Absolutely. This, this is a scripture that the New Testament deliberately calls back to and says Jesus was fulfilling this. Absolutely. Describes what the Messiah is going to do. Is this for the Jews? Okay. Is it for the Jews only? What's, what's a key element in there? A light to the nations. This is in there. Now remember, Luke is writing after Jesus. Jews necessarily before Jesus don't necessarily have the same understanding. So we're going to skip over to uh, 49 now. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant lands. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribe of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see you and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. What do we see in this one? Right back in there to the Gentiles. And uh, uh, do we see his mission to Judah here? Yes, he says, it is, um, I will make you, I will call Judah back to myself. I, through you, I will call Judah and return them to you. But what does he say that is? 
He says, that is too small. That is, in other words, what? That's too, that's too easy to call Judah back. I've got what? I've got bigger plans for you. You see that? God had a bigger plan for the Messiah prior to Jesus coming. It wasn't like the church made up this idea that Jesus was the light unto the Gentiles. It was actually there, buried in the Old Testament all the time. Um, what happened is that Israel doesn't quite read these messianically. Israel doesn't read these in a messianic light because it says Judah and Jacob, and he calls my, my servant Israel. So Israel's job was to be a light unto the nations. They didn't necessarily read it messianically. And so what you get is not a lot of people really understand that this is part of the message of the Messiah. That the Messiah is not just going to return Israel. And do we see Jesus doing this? Does he, is he returning? What did we talk about yesterday? Do we remember what we talked about yesterday? <laughs> the deer in the headlights look is just awesome. Do we remember what we talked about yesterday? What was Jesus doing? He's restoring Israel. He's restoring the 12 tribes. That's why he had the disciples. He is restoring Israel up. What else did he do? He did hang with the sinners and tax collectors. Now, why did he do that? They are the lost sheep. It, the, the Jews of Jesus' day did what? They closed them off. They shut those people off and said, they're outside of Israel. What did Jesus do? He brought them back in and said, these are the lost sheep that we're talking about, and you've left them out there, and I'm going to bring them back in. So he's restoring Israel. He's restoring Israel to bringing all of Israel back, the lost sheep of Israel he's bringing back. And then what else did we, what else did we say he did? He initiates... He establishes a new covenant. That's exactly right. And the last one was what? We did talk about the 12 disciples. He's pulling Israel out from under the dark forces and powers that are oppressing them. Now, actually, what's really interesting is because last night, that's, who Tim, that's a lot of what Tim was talking about last night, which is sin, if you noticed about it, he talked about sin as a power. He didn't talk about sin as something that you do. He talked about sin as something that gets on you, like a stain, and it, and it sucks you away from God. That's talking about sin as a power. Does that make sense? We are not talking about that today. We are going to talk about it later on in the week. But, so I, but I do want to say, he talked about that last night in a very similar way that we're going to talk about on like Thursday or Friday. So I want us to, to remember, remember that. We're going to come back to that, to that story. So how did the Gentiles get incorporated into the church? When did the church figure this out? How did the church figure this out? Paul reached out what? They have a lot of discussions about circumcision. What is the story that we kind of all go to in Acts where the Gentiles get included? Peter's vision of the sheep. That is absolutely true. Uh, that is, when, you, when you ever think about the Gentiles being included, you get st the, Peter, the story of Peter and the sheep, right? I want to take us another route. And it isn't that that didn't happen, because that's part of what happened. But I want to show something else, and it's really interesting because it's the way God really does work. Okay? Um, one of the funny things about history is that you can't talk about things that happen simultaneously. Um, one of the most famous battles in American history was the Battle of Gettysburg. It was fought over July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in, in a little Pennsylvania town called Gettysburg, right? Um, it's one of the most famous battles of the Civil War. Um, and fought over those three days, 51,000 Americans died both north and south. Um, as a matter of fact, a unit raised not far from here in Detroit, Michigan, called the 24th Michigan, served in a, in a brigade called the 
Iron Brigade, which was actually uh, an, a critical element of the Union victory on the first day of the battle. The Iron Brigade with the 24th Michigan, which was raised right out of Detroit, went to Gettysburg and they actually were part of the first day of the battle and by their kind of what's called a delaying action, they were able to hold off the high ground around the town of Gettysburg and defend against the South's assault. But something that don't, people don't really realize is um, the Battle of Vicksburg in Mississippi was fought over the exact same time frame. Matter of fact, Vicksburg fell July 4th. So Gettysburg was fought the first, second, and third, and the Battle of Vicksburg actually was a siege of Vicksburg. There's this siege that's going on. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's, let's pretend a little game here. You're talking with your grandkids, which we all have grandkids in here, right? Some of us do. Right? I'm looking at myself here. I have three grandchildren myself. Um, so let's play a game of pretend, and you're talking to your kids about the Civil War. And you're going to talk to them about Gettysburg, and you're going to talk to them about the Siege of Vicksburg, and how, when, by the way, Vicksburg was actually pretty critical. In terms of logistics, um, it cut the Mississippi in half, and the South was truly cut in half. It was actually probably more logistically and strategically critical than Gettysburg. Really, it was. But if you're going to get down to the press of it all and kind of the big things, more people died at Gettysburg and, we all get the, and it gets kind of the big press. But strategically, Vicksburg was critically important. Now, how do you explain that to your children? Which story do you tell first? Do you tell them about the Battle of Gettysburg first or do you tell them about the, about the, the siege of Vicksburg which started a couple weeks before? How do you, how do you tell the story? You told him the Battle of Gettysburg first? Lee was trying to get out of Virginia. He was trying to get into the North so he could win a uh, strategic battle over the North so that he could get Europe to kind of come in on their side. Right? Is that how you start? And it was short and quick, and it was short and quick right? Do you do that? Who's going to tell Gettysburg first? Okay. Now, who's then going to talk about, okay, but what really happened is that the South had to get cut off from Texas and anything that was all the way over there. There's a large number of people in Texas. So separating the Mississippi and controlling the Mississippi prevented the South from being able to send supplies north and south, and it cut Texas off from the rest of the South. And that happened over a two-week siege that ended on July 3rd. Who's going to tell them the Vicksburg siege first? So we're all going to go Gettysburg, Vicksburg, even though Vicksburg, what? Started first. Do you know why that is? It's not because you're bad people. Do you know why that is? Because when you're telling a story, you can only tell one story at a time. Things can happen simultaneously that are occurring simultaneously, but when you're telling the story, you can only tell what? One at a time. And this is exactly what's going on with the inclusion of the Gentiles. The story of Paul, or uh, Peter, and the sheet is happening almost at the same time as the outreach at Antioch. Almost at the same time. Now, we never really get those pieces put together because when you're reading Luke, or you're reading Luke's story of Acts, you get one, and then you get the other. Let me walk it through you so I can prove it to you, all right? And then we're going to figure out what, what we're talking about when we talk about this outreach of the Gentiles. Uh, in terms of the time frame, we're going to start in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to move from Acts chapter 7 quickly. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 7, we're going to hop around, so we're going to be flipping between Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13, okay? So, does anyone know the story about Acts chapter 7? What happens? Stephen went to one of those weed shops you guys have up 69. I've seen those places, right? Man, I Indiana, we don't have those. I was kind of surprised. I'm like, is that a weed shop? Yes, it is. It's a weed shop. Oh, yeah, they're all over. It was a lot of fun. Okay. So, in Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen does this big, long speech, and he gets himself killed. Right? I want to go to the very end here. Right? Stephen is killed in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. And then verse 8 
chapter 8, it says this. Saul had agreed with the Sanhedrin that Stephen should die. On that day, the church in Jerusalem began to be attacked and was treated badly. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay? So this is the persecution of the church that happens right after Stephen's been stoned. How many of us knew that this happened? Right? So we then skip to chapter 9. And what happens in uh, Acts chapter 9? Saul gets his conversion experience and Saul becomes Paul, right? And he goes where? Yes, he goes to Damascus and he sits and he learns under Ananias. And then chapter 10 and 11, we find what famous story? What happens in Acts chapter 10? This is Cornelius and the sheet from heaven, right? Some of us who are doing this on our phones are kind of going, I can't go fast enough. All right, I got it. If you have big Bibles, see this why you have Bibles. You can flip through the pages. I don't care. So, uh, so then Peter in Acts chapter 11 then explains his actions, right? And then we have this weird line in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Okay, now listen here. Some believers had been scattered by the suffering that unbelievers had caused upon them. They were scattered after Stephen was killed. Those believers traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, but they spread the word only among Jews. Some believers from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. There they began to speak to Greeks also. They told them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's power was with them, and large number of people believed and turned to the Lord. What is this? This is the Gentiles. And this, are they saying that this is happening after Peter has had his vision? It's after Stephen is killed. They, they're all scattered, and they start teaching the word. And some people goes up to Antioch, right? And they start preaching the word, and what happens? Gentiles start coming to Christ. Now, what Luke is doing is Luke is using Peter's vision as kind of this turning point. It's kind of the official point where the church goes, yes, we're allowing, we're allowing these people in. But it didn't happen like Peter was first in every, it was just happening. God had just decided he was gonna do it. And what you get is you get Peter's vision and you get a church in Antioch and you get these people from Cyrene and they're just doing it. It's just happening. And guys, this is the way God's spirit works all the time. Is it's rarely going to be just God doing one thing in one place at one time. It's going to be doing multiple things and they're going to kind of converge in this, well, it sure seems like God is doing something. Because Peter could not have predicted that this is what was going to occur. Does this make sense? So Luke is recording it linearly, and he's talking about Peter first and Antioch second, but the reality is that it's all just happening simultaneously because God's Spirit is doing multiple things among multiple people. And multiple people are coming to Christ. So um, the church in Antioch doesn't have a Peter that can go, hey, we're going to kind of just do it like this, and because I'm a pillar of the church, we're all just kind of going to accept it. What happens is this. The church in Jerusalem heard about this, so they did what? They sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he arrived, he saw that the grace, that what the grace of God had done, and he was glad. He told them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large number of people came to know the Lord. What's going on here? There's a church in Antioch, which is up in Syria. Yes. 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 Right. It just explodes. Right. Right. Well, 
Right. I mean, try, try the last sentence you just said again. Yes. 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 Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. God does not leave us suffering in our, in our persecution. Yes. Yes, yes, they had, they had actually made the, the, the court of Gentiles. It was actually a part of, if you go all the way back and read in, uh, in um, Solomon's dedication of the temple, Solomon talks about non-believers coming to the temple and worshiping God. So there had always been a spot and a place for the Gentiles to come and worship. They weren't allowed to go into the inner, the inner courts. I'm sorry? Possibly could have, possibly could have went to that. Uh, there was a lot of, there's, there's a lot of history involved in this. There's a lot of Jews that come down into Ethiopia. There are actually there are groups of people in Ethiopia today who claim to be descendants of Jews. So it's just a really interesting history. I wish we could, could dig into that. Um, here's the thing I really want to kind of pull out is how unnatural this is in the ancient world. And this is something that we wouldn't get because we live in the world in which we live in today. And religions should be open to who? Everybody, we all think this. We all think this is what religions are for. And if you don't have a religion that is open to everybody, well, then there's something wrong with your religion or you, right? Okay, that's just weird in terms of the, how the ancient world functioned. So you gotta give me a chance to kind of back that up and kind of set the groundwork for this. Um, we think of religion as a series of beliefs about the world that are usually about deities and higher powers. Um, that's one particular way, a very Christian way, of looking at religion and what religion is and what religion does. What a lot of cultures did and what a culture still do is religion is actually considered an intricate part of their culture. It's integrated into their culture. And so if you belong to this tribe, you had the gods of your fathers and of your grandfathers and of your ancestors, and they taught you how to worship their gods in their way. And so what you did is that's how you showed yourself to be a good member of that tribe. Remember we talked about belonging? This goes back to that. To belong to a particular group of people meant I don't just... I don't just dress a certain way, but my whole life is kind of encapsulated in this way. I'll give you, I'll give you another illustration. Um, I have a friend of mine who goes to Ghana every year. He has a ministry in Ghana every year where they're working with uh, orphanages that are over there. And he went over there to stay, I think it was like two years ago. And uh, they, they put him up in a, a building not unsimilar to this. And it had a kitchen with a stove and a and it had a microwave, and it had a refrigerator, and he was like, wow, this is awesome, how great is that? And they said, this, this is for our Western guests, this is for our, our non-African guests. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. He went over to people's houses, and what they had in their houses is uh, they would cook over open fires with charcoal on the ground. And he's like, well, we know they have the capabilities to have a stove, right? How come? Because they have a stove. They have a stove that you can cook over. But when he started inter- interacting with these people, the, the Ghanans said, that's just for the, our Western people so that they can cook in a way that is familiar with them. This is our way of cooking. This is our culture's way of preparing food. And he's like, well, well that's weird, right? Why would you not use a stove? if you had the capacity to use a stove. 
Why am I preserving my culture by cooking over charcoal? Well, shocker, not everybody thinks of culture the same way you do. For them, culture, their way of life, was passed on by the woman hunched over this fire, preparing it over charcoal and cooking it in this very specific cultural way and cooking it with this very specific cultural type of food. And doing it in other ways was not just faster, more efficient, easier. It was American Western. You see what I'm saying? Now, that's just weird to us because when we look at a stove, we don't think culture. We think faster dinner, right? That's what we think of. When we see a microwave, we don't think American. We think, I want my hot chocolate now, and I don't want to wait for the water to boil. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm not wrong, right? Other cultures don't view things the same way we do. So when they looked at religion and religious practices, they didn't consider it just um, a way of connecting to God. It was all part of a life that had been passed on. So you were not just passing on a belief about the world and then conforming to that belief. You were passing on a whole way of life, a whole way of being, a whole way of being a type of person. And this is why when you were saying, I want to become a Jew, you were not just saying, I want to worship God. You were saying, I reject my family, I reject my past, I reject my culture, I reject all of it, and I am joining these people in this culture in this way. Does this make missions a little bit different now? Yes, absolutely. We, because we only think of religion as this separated, independent belief that you have in your mind about God. That's the way we think about it. Whereas most other cultures are integrated into their whole way of being in the world. It's a whole culture of being in the world. So here comes the problem. Now Jesus is becoming everything to these people. Jesus has now moved from being the Lord of just the Jews. He's become a light to the Gentiles. Well, what does that mean? What are you meaning? What's it mean to be a light to the Gentiles? Specifically when you have that concept of what religion is. It just got a lot harder, didn't it? Are we just now talking about Jesus, about these people going, I, I will follow Jesus now? No, in a lot of ways, you're talking about people cutting themselves off from everything that has made them them and having to start over and having to figure out what that means. So this is what's going on in Antioch. In Antioch, they're not thinking about it. Nobody's doing this missiological thought work. You know what they're doing? I love Jesus. He saved me. Do you want to know him? Yes, yes, I do. Great. Okay, what's that mean about my dad? Uh, I don't know. But let's tell other people about Jesus. This is what's going on. You see what I'm saying? Not a lot of deep thought. Not a lot. They're just, it's just happening. And there's, this, by the way, is how theology works, okay? God moves. God acts. And the church goes, wait a minute, we don't understand. Slow down. We don't get it. Help us understand what it is that you're doing. That's what theology, that's all theology is. We don't get it. Help us understand. Anything more complicated than that, and you're not really doing theology anymore. Anything more complicated than that, and you're kind of making up your own religion. We are trying to follow God where he's going. We're not trying to tell God where he can go. Does that make sense? So this is what's happening. Antioch is just exploding. Now, take the idea I just told you. Now, think about those Jews who are down in Jerusalem who may or may not have already had Peter's vision. We don't know. We're assuming they probably did have Peter's vision. 
But the first guy wasn't saved, and then the word got down to Israel immediately, right? That isn't how that works. The first guy gets saved, the second guy gets saved, third guy gets saved, and a church of 20 people becomes a church of 300 people in like 18 months, right? It's something in that time frame. And then what do you, what do you think someone goes up to Antioch on a business deal, right? That was Antioch. I want to stop off and see the brothers. And my Lord in heaven, Peter, there were all these people there. And none of them were circumcised. And I was like, what is this? How can they be followers of Jesus? So I went back home to Jerusalem, and I told you guys, what's, what they're doing up there is really wrong, really weird, really bad. We don't understand what's going on. And so what does the church in Jerusalem do? We guess this all makes sense, right? They say, hey, let's send somebody we know and trust up to Antioch to set them out, figure out what's going on. This is what they're doing. Someone that they didn't know and trust came back with a report that they were kind of concerned about. So they sent somebody that they did know and trust, and they sent them up there to get a hold of them. That's all that's going on, guys. Barnabas goes up there, and what does Barnabas do? When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad. He told them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Large numbers of people came to know the Lord. Large numbers of people, we don't know exactly what that could be, but that's probably more than seven. Okay? Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He found him there, and then he brought him where? To Antioch. And for a whole year... Barnabas and Saul met with the church. They taught large numbers of people at Antioch. The believers were called Christians for the first time. Now, the only way we can date this is the next paragraph. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named was Agabus. He stood up and spoke to the Spirit, and he said, there would be not nearly enough food anywhere in the Roman world. This happened when Claudius was the emperor. The believers decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, and all of them helped as much as they could. They sent their gifts to the elders, through Barnabas and Saul. We can actually um, uh, use that. I'm going to look at my date here. Um, we actually have a date for this. This There was a famine. It was a, um, it's, it's somewhere in the reign of Claudius. We know when Claudius was emperor. Um, so it could be as early as 44 A.D., and it could be as late as 54 A.D. So that puts our limits on it. Um, we know that there was a, um, a famine somewhere in that window because they talk about it, and they did talk about there being a famine. It's outside of the scriptural sources, actually. Um, it's just not known exactly when. So it's somewhere in that window. Uh, I like the date of about um, 46 to 48, uh, 47 is when I think this is going on. Okay, so this is not very long after Jesus, about 15 years after, after Pentecost, about 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The church has now begun to spun out. So it probably was not something that happened like in like a year. The church had probably been doing what it was doing for quite a while. Uh, the point is that in Antioch, the church for a while is trying to figure out what it means to reach Gentiles. They're trying to sort it all out. They're trying to figure out what it's supposed to be. And then in Acts chapter 13, we're in Acts chapter 13. Barnabas and Saul finished their task and they returned from Jerusalem. They, they dropped off the, the, the money, right? They dropped off the money in Jerusalem for the, for the um, famine. They took John Mark with them. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Among them were Barnabas, Simon, and Lucius from Cyrene. Simon was also called Niger. Another was Manaan, and he brought him, who had been brought up with Herod, the ruler of Galilee. Saul was among them too. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for me. I've appointed them to do a special work. The prophets and the teachers fasted and prayed, and they placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul, and then they sent them off. The first missionary church was not Jerusalem. It was Antioch. 
Antioch, which had been doing this work for a long time. It had been trying to figure out what all this meant. Now, if you think Paul and Simon and Barnabas were all in Antioch going, uh, okay, well, we all know we need, to reach, we need to reach Gentiles. Let's do this. No. Like, they had to figure out what it meant, right? God's doing this thing. Let's go back in the Old Testament. Let's go back in the Scriptures and figure it out. And so they've done this for a while. And what's probably going on here is that these people are meeting together and praying and figuring out Paul's theology that he's given to them. Remember, Paul has a vision in Galatians. He says, I got a vision. It was given to me. Well, they're sorting through all of this and going into the Old Testament and trying to figure it all out. And then they said what? The Holy Spirit comes and says, set aside these guys because I've got a special task for them. And that's when Paul and Barnabas get sent off. And they go on this task, and this is what's called what? What do we call this? This is Paul's first missionary journey. It starts in Antioch. It doesn't start in Jerusalem, where all the disciples are at. It starts in Antioch that has just kind of been doing it. And it doesn't have a real rich, deep theology. It's got Paul there, and it's helping him sort it all out. But they just decide, we're going to go do this. This is how the missionary impulse goes. God just does things. And the church scrambles to figure out what it's doing, trying to understand it, to make it coherent. And then all of a sudden, God says, all right, you've done enough thinking, right? You've done enough thinking. It's time to do what? It's time to go. Set these guys apart, pray for them, and send them on their way. That's what happens. He gives them time to sort it out. He gives them time to kind of have a message figured out. And then he sends them out on their way. And this is where it gets really interesting because then the church has to figure out how they're going to do this. And what, what happens here in Acts chapter 15? So Paul's on his missionary journey. He's going, he's talking to people. They're beginning to lead people to Christ. It's a short missionary journey. You might call this a trial run right? Floating a trial balloon. Let's see how this works. We kind of got Paul's theology. We kind of got Paul's thing. Let's send him on a little, you know, you know, one, two-year missionary. It's a short-term missions trip, right? What, what do you think that is? They're trying it. They're experimenting, right? They're trying to sort it out, because they're starting something that hadn't been done before. And so they're going to, it's a, it's, if you look at it, look at the map. It's like boom, 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 back to Antioch. It is, not a, it is not a long journey. It's like a year and a half. It is a short-term missions trip. What happens is, what, is that Paul's missions trips gets what? They get longer, and they get further, and it gets more ambitious. But it starts off with this very small, short, what do you think he's doing? Okay, God, I think you got this idea. I think I've got this thing going on. You, can you see it? We've got this theology. I think we understand what you're doing. I think we get it. Let's go try it out. But we're not going to try it out on a six-year journey, right? We're going to try it out on like a two-year little trip. Help us figure out what this looks like. What would we call that? Is that smart, dumb, not faithful, faithful? What is this? It's what? It's an adventure. Right? This isn't dumb, guys. This is not missions by impulse. This is missions that's been well thought out. Yes. Yes. Right. Some things aren't going to work, right? Because they're dealing with a whole other group of people. Do you know how many religions in the ancient world were for everybody? Not a lot. Most people kept within, I'm Roman. I worship Roman gods. I have Roman, I have Roman uh, relationships. Why would I worship Egyptian gods? Like that isn't, that isn't a big thing. It did become something like that, but it actually becomes like that later on. It's, um, this is not something that a lot of people did. 
So they're experimenting and they're trying things out. So in Acts chapter 15, we get this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. By the way, do you know why they say down when Antioch is actually north? Everything is downhill. That's exactly right. It sounds weird to us because Antioch is actually north. But certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and here's what they were teaching to the believers. Moses commanded that you are to be circumcised. They said, if you aren't, you can't be saved. But Paul and Barnabas didn't agree with them. They argued strongly with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. Some other believers were chosen to go with them. They were told to ask the apostles and elders about this question. We're going to jump to Galatians if you want to jump there. But let's talk about this before we, before we head to Galatians. What's going on here? Do you do, remember the, the truth of Gettysburg and Vicksburg? Had the church in Antioch been the only ones working things out? How come? How do we know that? What, what just happens in that verse? That's exactly right. People down in Jerusalem were figuring this thing out. And if you want to skip to, to Acts chapter 15 later on, in 15 at the, at the, the council. I, I, I shouldn't have jumped so soon. Um, if you go to the bottom of the council, in verse 5, Acts chapter 15, verse 5, some of the believers were what? Pharisees. <gasps> Those people who hated Jesus? Yes, they actually followed Jesus. Jesus probably, in all reality, should have been understood as a Pharisee. Really, he should have been. Which I know is kind of like, what? How is that possible? Uh, in terms of ideologies going on in early Judea, Jesus would have closely rep resembled Pharisees. Which is ironic, because nobody confuses Jesus with a Pharisee. right? But this is why he pulls them in. Because he's actually the closest to their position. So these Pharisees say what? They gotta follow the law of Moses. Was the Old Testament? That is exactly right. And here's the question. Okay, now here's this. Here's this whole thing. You go to the Old Testament, and it does say if you're gonna be a follower of God, you gotta get circumcised. That's exactly what it says in the Old Testament. And but at the but the reality of the day was, if you're gonna get circumcised, you are not just having a certain part of your body clipped off, you are joining that culture. You are joining that whole way of life, and you are what? Rejecting your other culture. Who's going to be willing to do that? Which is why Jews didn't have a huge number of converts, because you were not just joining a new faith, you were rejecting your own culture, and you were joining a whole nother culture. I'm sorry? You had to go code, like all of these laws that go into it. You had to keep all of the laws that are, that are a, a part of it. And it was just so hard to get people to make that jump. Paul sees this and goes, circumcision is not the marker that you are in. Remember we talked about belonging, right? This is all, this is all part of the citizenship question, which I know you've all forgotten because we talked about it so long ago. This is all part of that citizenship question. What does it mean to belong? And for these Pharisees, what did it mean to belong? Circumcision. Circumcision makes you a Jew. It makes you in covenant. That's what it makes you. And so for the Pharisees, the Pharisees are saying, look, you can't be in covenant with God if you've not been in covenant with God. Like, you've got to do that. You've got to get in the covenant. And they had been sitting in Jerusalem, probably with James, probably with Peter, and they're trying to work it out too, right? They're working it out just like the church in Antioch is working it out, but they're working it out from different angles. Do you see how that's working? The Jews in Jerusalem are working it out from, the, from a Jewish perspective. The, the believers in Antioch are working out it from a Gentile perspective. Do you, do you see how that's happening? This was, is the hardest debate that the church ever had. 
ever. And I mean, there's no debate now that can come close to this. This is, without a shadow of a doubt, the hardest jump the church has ever had to do. Ever. And it's mainly because we don't think of it like that because we live post Acts chapter 15. We live after Acts chapter 15. If you're living before that council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, guess what? You're divided. Do we circumcise or do we not circumcise? That's exactly right. They didn't. Matter of fact, the Greeks considered it mutilation of the flesh. It was considered reprehensible. And so the, the, early, the early Gentile believers are in Antioch, and they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ from a Gentile perspective. The Jews in Jerusalem are in Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ from a Jewish perspective. And they're coming from two, to two very different conclusions, which is why you get Pharisees going up to Antioch going, you're not doing this right. And Paul's up in Antioch, and he's a Jew, and Paul goes, oh, they ain't not doing it right. They are doing it right. And the Pharisees are going, you're wrong. And Paul's going, you're wrong. And if you want to see how bad this can get, turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I told him to his face that I was against what he was doing. He was clearly wrong. He was used to... He used to eat with Gentiles, but certain men came from a group sent by James. When they arrived, Peter began to draw back. He separated himself from the Gentiles. That's because he was afraid of the circumcision group sent by James. Peter's actions were not honest, and other Jews in Antioch joined him. Even Barnabas was led astray. Does this sound like the church is having an easy time with this trouble? No. Our problem with homosexuality right now is nothing compared to what they're dealing with. I'm not saying homosexuality is good, bad, right, wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this was a hard issue. And the church kind of always thinks like this. Man, this issue is so hard. I don't know how we're going to figure it out. It's so tough. It's so hard. This is the hardest thing we've ever done. The church has never had to deal with a hard issue. You know what? That's just not true. It's just not true. It's just not true. The church had the hardest issue to deal with inside of 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And they had to sort it out. And you had two honest groups of believers who were coming to two very different opinions about how it was going to get done. And here's why you don't catch it in Luke, okay? You don't catch it in Luke because Luke's writing somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D. The decision the Council of Jerusalem was what? Already done. It was a done deal. The deal had already been made. So when Luke is writing, the issue had kind of already fallen off on the wayside. What we're catching is the remnants of it. That, oh yeah, this was why it was so hard, and this is why we had a council in Jerusalem, because it was really difficult. But we solved it, so we can move on now. But at the time, you get Paul writing things like, and of those who are from the circumcision group, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Does that sound very friendly to you? Does that sound like Paul's having a, just a good old friendly debate with friends? No, it's not. Does it sound like Paul was treating Peter with deference and respect? No, he said, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You used to eat with him, and then when this group from James, and it was James, James, the, the Lord's brother, leader of the church in Jerusalem, probably was the one who had decided to come to this conclusion. And so he's probably the one, not for sure, probably the one who all these people are talking with, and they're going out from him. Maybe he didn't send them. It says in Acts chapter 15 he didn't send them. So maybe they just kind of went on their own accord. And they're just kind of stirring things up. Guys, this is the hardest jump the church ever made. Ever. Reaching every other people group was easy compared to this. Because Jewish circumcision was so embedded in their whole way of life. And what you were asking a Gentile to do was not just get certain parts of his body cut. You were asking him to reject everything that he knew. 
everyone that, everyone that was a part of his life, you were asking him to reject and to join this new culture. Very similar. It is very similar. You're not asking them just to accept Jesus. You're asking them to reject their whole way of life. Well, this is what Paul talks about. If you read Galatians, the central issue is not, can you do good works and, and, and be a believer? It really is, do you have to be circumcised or not? That is the central issue of Galatians. Circumcision is not the, and this, this is the way it works. What makes you in? What makes you a part of the group? For Jews, it was circumcision. That means you are in covenant with God. Paul says what? It is faith in Christ that is the marker that you are in. It is no longer circumcision. Yes? Where are the women in all this? <laughs> um, women were important. Um, a matter of fact, a, a Jewish woman was the sign that the, the man was supposed to be circumcised. If the mother was Jewish, then the child was Jewish. Because women don't get circumcised, but they're the ones that carry the men, and they were Jewish by the fact of their birth in that, in that line. See, it's all very interconnected with your biology, right? Um, I'm sorry, that was a good question. It just threw me off from where, where I was at. Uh, it's good. Um, the markers. And you guys know what I'm talking about with the markers, the, the idea of belonging, the idea that you're on the team. Uh, think of it as a, as, a, as a baseball team, right? You're going to belong to a baseball team. How do I know I'm on Bill's barn, barnyard team versus I'm on Jill's Jack's? The uniform. You wear the uniform. You've got a shirt, right? Well, that's the marker that you're on that team. Circumcision was the marker that you were on the Jewish team. Well, what's the marker that you're on Jesus' team? Paul says, faith in Christ. That is what makes you on Christ's team. Now, of course, what does that mean? <laughs> right? What does that mean to have faith in Christ? Is it just goes, I believe in Jesus. Is that what he's talking about? Or is there more to this faith in Christ than just a head knowledge assent? Which is what we're going to get into on a later day. You show your faith by your works. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. So um, we're about out of time here. What are our, yes? we got 15 more minutes. Yes. Yes. Right. Oh, they are cutting their baby teeth on probably one of the hardest issues the church will ever face. Yeah, go ahead. How are we doing that? Yep. Yes. The church ends up asking a tremendous amount from the Gentiles. It really does. And we'll get into that because the church's way of life was tremendously different than the rest of the world's way of life. But the thing they weren't going to ask of the Gentiles was circumcision. 
I mean, they asked a lot. When you go into the, and we'll talk about that at a later date, um, they asked a lot of, of, of those Gentiles. It wasn't like it was a, hey, we're trying to make this easier. That's not really what it was because the ask of them was an awful lot. Um, they still asked them to put away their parents and their family's religion, which was still cutting them off from their family. But instead of being inculcated into a Jewish community, you were being inculcated into the kingdom of God. And that was a different ask because the Jewish community was a very specific community with a specific history and a specific way of being in the world. The kingdom of God was distinct from both the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, and it had its own way of being in the world. Do you know what I mean by being in the world? Kind of, sort of? We'll talk about that in a later time. How do, we put, how do we put life together? How do we raise our kids? How do we, how do we, how do we make business deals? How do, right. How do we do our day-to-day? How do we live our lives on a day-to-day level? That's what I mean by being in the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so... My, my encouragement is this. We think we're having a really difficult time right now in the church trying to figure out this whole homosexuality, transgender, um, blah, blah. I know there's LGBTQ plus XYZ, ABC. I mean, there's a whole, they're just going to keep adding until we all cry uncle, right? And we feel like we're in this, this fight to the death with the most critical issue of all time. Uh, guys, it's just not. It's just not. It's actually a lot easier than what we think. What's going on in our culture is just bonkers. Right, it's just bonkers. And here's how I know, because no other culture has ever done this. Not even Rome in its height decided that you could just, a man could marry a woman. You could have relations with other men. They didn't think you could marry them because that wasn't what marriage was. What we're doing right now is very, very culturally specific to us. And because we have a lot of power and a lot of money, we feel like we can bully everybody else to agree with us. That's it. That's just what we're dealing with. This is not a hard issue compared to what this. This was hard. This was a hard issue, and the church had to deal with it. And the church called each other names, and they said, you're wrong, and they said, no, you're wrong, and they said, I got scripture on my side, and they said, no, I got scripture on my side, and they all pointed at each other. You know what we don't have in this debate right now? One side just doesn't have scripture on their side. What we're debating is kind of this idea of, well, you know, a generalized idea of love and acceptance, a very general, don't get specific, because if you get specific things get really a lot harder. Like asking, well, what did Jesus mean by love? Did he mean that or this? What did he mean? And the whole thing goes, well, it wasn't that. That's not what he meant by love. Whatever he meant, it wasn't that. Clearly, and you can just look at the text. You can find that out. We are not suffering from some kind of really, truly, deeply profound problem of true spiritual significance. What we're dealing with is people don't want to give up sin. And repentance. That's what we're dealing with, people. And the church has to just simply hold the line. In 300 years, I guarantee you people will look back on us and go, those people were bonkers. I guarantee it. Because we already do that right now, all those people out there. They do it right now to people who grew up in the 90s. They already do it to them. And we're only talking 30 years. So how the values are going to change in 300 years, I guarantee you there's nobody in 300 years who are going to think that everything that we're doing is just hunky-dory. It's just not going to be that way. What we lack is any kind of real perspective. We don't think of ourselves in light of other people who had real problems. We think of ourselves as sitting in the midst of our problems and no one's ever had it as hard as us. No, I'm sorry, you're wrong. It's been a lot harder before. And right now, nobody's killing us. Right? Nobody's killing us as of right now. 
We might not be far away, but at least right now we're not getting killed. <coughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. We're, that is a struggle, but that has always actually been the struggle. The question is not, can we get everybody in America today to buy into this? That's not the problem. That just isn't the problem. The problem's going to be in 300 years when those believers look back on us, which one are they going to say they got it right and they got it wrong? What we do today is in five years when we all look back on you and we go, which one of them got it right and which one? We call that being on the right side of history. Five years is not enough. Five years is not the right side or the wrong side of history. Illustration. The American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln basically butchered our Constitution. He did. Whether you like the Civil War or not, he butchered our Constitution in order to preserve the Union. 500,000 people died to preserve the Union. Okay? Good thing, bad thing. We're still in debate about that. So is Abraham Lincoln on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? We ain't figured that out yet. What happens is we kind of get this idea that if we win the debate right now, we're on the right side of history. Values change, beliefs change, contexts change, ideas change, and they change over a very long time frame. And what we as Americans do is we sit here and we go, oh, it's so hard. It's not. You gotta think in light of eternity. When you think in light of eternity, our problems become just what the church has been dealing with for 2,000 years. There's always a group of people who are doing pagan stuff and they call themselves Christians. I mean, always. They always been. Some of the popes were real doozies. Right? Some of the popes were real doozies. Right? Who knows who um, uh, George Whitfield is? George Whitfield, one of the most brilliant American preachers um, in American history. He really went from Georgia to, to um, Massachusetts preaching the gospel up and down and up and down and back and forth and back and forth. And you know what he and John Wesley disagreed on? Slavery. George Whitfield thought slavery was a good thing. John Wesley thought slavery was a bad thing. They were both believers. They both loved Jesus. And guess what? They both disagreed about slavery. It happens. Good people can have authentic disagreements about hard issues. What happens is we all get our mind kind of blown up because we think the ones we're dealing with today are some kind of unique, unforeseen, unbelievable problem. Does it make sense? Yes. Well, um, the, Christ, the type of Christianity that's running around doing some of the things that we're dealing with right now, I'm gonna, they're dinosaurs, okay? They are all remnants left over from the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was about a 300-year period where, the, where culture in general in the West said nothing supernatural, whatever that means, nothing supernatural can happen, only natural things happen. Right, no miracles. Miracles all can't happen. What we're dealing with is the remnants of, those, of that people group, okay? Africa didn't have an enlightenment. Africa has hundreds of millions of Christians. Hundreds of millions of Christians, okay? And they experience miracles, okay? Christianity declining in America. Okay, let's accept that. Declining in America. Everywhere else on the upswing, Okay? So this type of declining Christianity, right? Well, it's a dinosaur. It's declining because it doesn't function. It doesn't function in the real world. I'm just looking at the numbers, people. Numbers-wise, South American Christians, who are, by the way, going through the roof, those people have no problems with miracles. It's a very specific type of Christian who has those sets of values. And that very specific type of Christian is shrinking in the world, mainly because they don't think they should breed. Right? They don't think they should be having children. 
And what do you think the Catholics are doing who are in Mexico and in South America? You think those Catholics in Mexico and South America are going, oh, we've got world problems. We should not have any more children. Let's go spend what little money we have on birth control so that we don't add to the world population problem. Do you think that's what they're doing? No, that's not what they're doing. They are breeding. Okay? This is not a long-term problem. Guys, we just got to hold on. We gotta hang on, hang on to the truth, hang on to the gospel, hang on to Christ. This too shall pass. This is not the hardest problem that the church has ever had to deal with. That one was. And people who were strong in the faith, they fought over it and they worked it out, and the Spirit took the church forward. And if they can do it, if God can do it with them, then guess what? He can do it with us. This is why I like to tell this story about Paul and Peter and them duking it out over this over sir because it was hard. It was hard and they figured it out and the church moved forward. You can love those people who you disagree with. You can love them. Because Christianity's not at stake. All right? Africa, China, South America, Russia, they're all not on that side, guys. They're just not there. Our job is to remain faithful to the gospel, faithful to Christ, and this will all work itself out. Don't get freaked out about it. Um, yes, it, it, that's, that is absolutely true. And what did we talk about yesterday? It's one thing when you hear about someone else who has cancer, right? It's another thing when what? Yep. When it gets in your home, it just changes the dynamic. It's the same thing. You're absolutely right. Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for the problems that we have endured. And we have endured countless problems as your people. Lord, we're in the midst of one. Help us to be faithful and to be true and to find our way towards you. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right.